Hello, I'm Peter Dunn from the University of Warwick, and I'm here today with Sir Peter Bazalgette, who's just received his honorary degree of Doctor of Letters from the University. So congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> so before I get into your own very varied uh, career, can I start with the career of your great-great-grandfather? Because I understand that you're trying to celebrate that at the moment by he created all the sewage systems underneath London, he was into steam engines in a big way, and, he's, and you're creating a museum which is preserving the steam engines which gave water, the water that Warwick, uh, that London needed, is that right? Very good description. <laughs> so Joseph Basil, my great-great-grandfather, was the civil engineer called upon to try and cure London of cholera. The city was growing very, very fast in the mid-19th century and um, there were outbreaks of cholera and people were drinking their own effluent from the Thames because the water closet was pumping all the effluent of London into the rivers. So he built the first major metropolitan sewage system. He laid down the embankments, transfluvium posuit, um, winkular transfluvium posuit is what it says on his statue, which is he put chains across the river. He built many of the bridges and did cure London of cholera and typhoid. And he, partly his system, depended on a couple of pumping stations with the largest rotative steam beam engines ever built. And they're being restored at the moment by some brilliant volunteers, and I've just been helping them over the last two decades to raise the money to restore the engines. And one of them, named after Prince Consort, Prince Albert, so they, 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 they had machines for pumping poo, and they named them after members of the royal family, so proud were they of public works. And uh, we hope to open that museum for the first time this year, so that's very exciting after 20 years of work. And the last point about it is, is that the Victorians understood about great public works that were being executed, not just for their own generation or even their children's, but their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And we need to think that way today, I always say. So it's a legacy thing. I understand the engines. It was on Wikipedia, so it must be true. And they're called Victoria, Prince, Consort, Albert, Edward and Alexandra. Is that right? So they're the four <laughs> members of the royal family in 1865 when they were put into steam. And they were mm. turned on by Bertie, Prince of Wales, who became Edward VII. So when we put... The, uh, Prince Consort back into steam in 2003. We got Prince Charles to turn oh, it on excellent. because it was originally turned on by his great-grandfather and named after his great-great-grandfather. Oh, excellent. Now, that, that's just one of the many things you're doing now. I've heard an interview where you described a vast array of things you're doing as akin to a form of attention deficit disorder, that that's why you do so many things. Is that still how you feel? About well, it's nice um, to have um, a varied sort of plural um, a a set of activities. So um, you know, sitting on a few boards, still having a media career um, involved in ITV, and I'm also an investor and on the board of YouGov, the market researcher. But um, actually, having become chair of Arts Council a couple of years ago, Arts Council England, which of course is one of the funders of arts and culture in England, um, that actually does take up a lot of my time. Uh, and a certain amount of politics and money, worrying about money, but also an enormous amount of pleasure going to dance and opera and going to uh, art exhibitions and going to um, all sorts of different arts events that I probably wouldn't have even heard of had I not been doing the job, so I'm very lucky. Oh. And to go back to the start of your career and what most people know you most for, which is your contribution to television, you've got into that, I understand, by Esther Ranson herself selecting you as a researcher for her programme, That's Life. And those of us that remember watching that programme remember it was everything from misshapen potatoes to finding out villains who were sort of, you know, taking money off you know, vulnerable people. Was that what it was like as a researcher? Was that sort of roller coaster? Yes, we're talking about the late 1970s. <laughs> we're talking about when 
television, which is still a mass medium in an era of promiscuous, um, as it were, individual media, you know. Um, but that program used to get 15, 20 million viewers on a Sunday night. Um, and yes, I was actually working in BBC News, but I had met her before. And she asked me to join her, as she did a number of other people. And she is a very fierce boss, but <laughs> a very brilliant journalist. And she had this popular touch. So, yes, uh, carrots of the most... <laughs> obscene and indescribable <laughs> shape were regularly paraded in front of the cameras along with quite hard consumer stories mm. and I used to have to research some quite hard stories with rather, rather a lot of villains mm. No, it, it was such a, a diversity a very strange contrast It was a bit like a local newspaper actually It was a sort of local newspaper of the air Yeah, And then you uh, moved on to actually producing programmes like uh, BBC's Food and Drink and many others and you then took the uh, taking that sort of food and drink example to its extreme and taking the idea of here's one I made earlier to its extreme. You then set up your own production company to create almost ready-made formats and programmes for other broadcasters. Is that well, There was an opportunity for those of us perhaps who were in our late 20s, early 30s in, in the late 1980s because they decided that BBC and ITV and Channel... F well, Channel 4 had already been set up specifically to try to stimulate an independent television production business sector. Uh, but that was just one element, and it was only spending probably 50 or 100 million a year on mm. programming. So then they made BBC and ITV, who made all their shows in-house, they made them open up and use that public money they had, public resources, to commission programmes. And, and that was an opportunity for those of us who were around the, at that time. So it was an opportunity to set up our own companies. And uh, I ha was already producing this hit show for BBC Two called Food and Drink, which did not um, feature misshapen carrots. It cooked, <laughs> cooked carrots instead, controversially. And um, so I got the opportunity to set up a company. So the nice thing about that was, although you might think it's a risk to set up your own company, I was able to get a turnover of about a million pounds for the company with the existing series that I was producing. So that was a help and a nice way of starting. But of course, the whole independent production sector then uh, grew over 30, 40 years. And it's one of the great success stories of the creative industries. And that was Bazal, was it, the company at that stage? I took the first half of my name, B-A-Z-A-L, and just uh, made it eponymous, yeah. yeah. And then Bazal, of course, famously, or infamously, or whatever, joined with Endable, and you had the clever idea of taking a format, as I understand it, was already in Holland from Endable, which was mm. Big Brother mm. uh, to the UK. Mm. Uh, now... I remember when Big Brother first came, I remember not watching it, not, not being interested, but then suddenly being told by people, we have this program where people are being followed night and day by cameras, by, uh, by, by microphones, and bizarrely there's a chap who knows he's being followed, who's being listened to all the time, is blatantly cheating and behaving in an appalling way. The so-called Nick Bateman, who was dubbed Nasty Nick by, uh, by the media at the time, did his actions singularly, this, yeah, this is the first time people had seen somebody behave in such an odd way, did that basically create that form of television or give it its impetus? Or was it yeah. was it more than that? Did you have confidence that the format was going to work? Or was Nasty Nick the thing which, which made it? Well, in the early days of Big Brother, we didn't have the confidence it was going to work, although it had already been on air and had something of a sensation in Germany and Spain and America and Holland originally a year earlier. Um, but the interesting thing about so-called Nasty Nick was that actually, I mean, he was just... Uh, he thought he was playing a game to to the nth degree. He was cheating to try to win and get people to vote other people out. And, you know, he'd been at public school. And I suppose that's how they behave at public school, and that's what he thought. Culturally, quite interesting, 
Um, most houses in their first series around the world had what you might call sexual scandals, where there was romance between oh, couples. Oh, oh. It was only in Britain <laughs> that we had what you could call a class scandal, because when he was finally um, uh, unmasked as a cheat, he was unmasked by semi-literate Craig from Liverpool, yes. a working-class um, builder. And uh, the working-class boy... Um, triumphed over the public schoolboy and this was a sensation on all the news programs because it touched the British nerve, the British obsession with class. So it was the a other, class thing. And the other point I'd make yeah. is that in America when Big Brother's been on, people who've cheated and played the game to its nth degree in that way have always been voted the winners because <laughs> Americans like people who do that. They think it's something to be applauded. Right. But here we have this rather charming sense of fair play and so we voted him out and didn't like him for it. So yeah. there are all sorts of cultural revelations that come out of it. So that, that, that is interesting. For Britain, it was a class thing. For other countries, it was sexual scandals. And, and to me, it was, does this, this guy forgotten that he's being watched? You know, it was the idea that, OK, he may cheat, but he was being, he's being recorded and this is all going to come out. He'd either forgotten or he was completely blasé about it. And that was a mm. revelation to me. He had forgotten. The thing about series one of Big Brother compared to all the other series is that the people in the house didn't have any idea that it was a popular show. They didn't even know who he was watching. They certainly had no idea that the tabloids were following it second by second. So they were, in a sense, uh, uh, ingenuous right. or innocent. And in a sense, he, he, he was just playing the game and reacting to people in the house, and he wasn't thinking about everybody watching. He wasn't thinking about that. A certain honesty comes out. Uh, it's only the first series that has that ingenuous quality. It's disingenuous after that by virtue of the fact people know they're being followed and they know the sorts of things that, that we've written about them. And, of course, it went on to be a great success and to have many other uh, TVs that aped that format, other shows, and it became a whole genre of TV in its own right. And I, I was always interested by the fact that this had been prefigured in some way by a TV programme I remember watching called, I didn't see it at the time, but uh, on tape afterwards, The Year of the Sex Olympics, which was way back in '68. had Leonard Rossiter as uh, its star, and it was written by Nigel Leal of Crater Mass of fame. And it, it seemed to uh, almost predict this idea of observational TV, of reality television. And I know that you have, have referenced this in the past. Do you? Yes, so I wrote a book about the Big Brother phenomenon called Billion Dollar Game, which you can buy, I think, for about threepence halfpenny on Amazon. I, I, I recommend <laughs> it to you. Um, and uh, since it was published about 10 years ago now. And I did look at some of the earlier shows. I mean, the Sex Olympics, as you say, was a drama written by uh, Neil of Quatermass fame, and it thought about people leading their lives in front of the camera. So he imagined, he thought forward, and he, in that sense he was doing a sort of H.G. Wells. Mm. Uh, and it was very interesting. And there were one or two other shows that in a way predicted it too. Some were documentaries, uh, and some were, um, uh, as I say, dr fictional drama. But th there was something in the ether, but it wasn't sort of didn't come to fruition. Perhaps you could say until technology allowed it, because Big Brother, the significance of Big Brother, it happened at the height of the internet boom. Mm. It was a single entertainment idea that linked the telephone, which you voted on, the television, which you watched the um, edited highlights on, and the internet, where you could watch the streaming of the house. And in media terms, it was very significant too, because it was probably the first television program in the history of television to show its rushes to the public when you watched yeah. the streaming. So that everybody who watched the edited highlights said, why are you so unfair to X or overfair to Y? And do you know what? They had an opinion. And why did they have an opinion? Because they've been shown the rushes. And that, from that came media uh, 
uh, knowledge and savviness because everybody now, even age 10, knows that programmes are edited and they are the subjective work of the director. But in those days, people didn't. So that was a major revelation for them. And that's interesting that you say that you know, 30 years beforehand, shows like the year for Sex Olympics, sort of not just predicted this, but showed it was in the ether. And the only thing which was stopping this reality TV becoming a reality was the technology. It was that combination, you say, of all those technologies coming together, the telephone voting, the internet, yeah. all of that, that actually made the show possible. And Nigel Neal's piece, The Sex Olympics, was a work of um, condemnation. It was a work of look at this evil media and look what it could do next. And he would have been astonished mm. to find that what he thought was appalling became something that people <laughs> enjoyed and now is fairly routine. Yeah. Of course, it wasn't so bad until he introduced a psychopath at the end of the year. <laughs> and there were deaths. And there were deaths. Yeah. Which we have managed to avoid. Yes, which I don't think you'll be using in any of your formats, one would hope, in the future. So is there a TV format that you haven't been involved in that you admire or sort of think, oh, I wish I'd taken that one forward, that's great. Well, there are thing. lots of them, but I'll just talk about one at the moment that I'm particularly fond of on Channel 4 called Gogglebox, <sighs> which has simply got the idea you put the camera on people watching TV shows. And w w the reason I love it is, one, it is an amazing insight into the life of the country of people of every sort, of every background, in every community, and what their reactions to news stories and popular entertainment are. Um, but it also just, it somehow, it takes the pulse of the nation. And uh, I think it's an amazingly clever format. So I'm very jealous of it. Excellent. And you were saying earlier, of course, you've become an advisor to so many things. Uh, you mentioned YouGov, uh, non-executive director for ITV, president of the Royal Television Society, uh, digital advertiser Myriad. And of course, you've been working as a commissioner on the University of Warwick's very own Warwick Commission on the Future of Cultural Value. Mm. Now, I know that hasn't reported yet, so you can't give what results of that are, but have you found that a valuable commission? Is it? Do you think it will be doing something useful for the arts or a useful experience? Yes, the Warwick Commission on the Future of Cultural Value, and of course Warwick University, to its credit, has done a number of commissions that have attempted to give leadership to different areas of important policy. So I think, you know, hats off to Warwick University to, t to adopt that position of leadership. It's really important. There's been a great deal of spade work, a great deal of argument, a great deal of research. But I do think that the final report, which is due out in February quite shortly, um, is good and has got a lot of important policy ideas in it. Now, they cover things like education and the arts. They cover things like what should the future industrial strategy be for the creative industries. And they also cover, about, cover diversity and equality and is everybody getting a share of the cake. And these are really, really important issues. And its timing is good because it's coming out three, week, three months before uh, general election. So I hope people read it and I, they don't have to agree with it, but I hope it stimulates a debate. Well, thank you for providing time to serve in our commission. You, you know, it's certainly been very welcome that you could, you could take time to do that. Uh, particularly as you're also the chair of Arts Council England, which must be a, a particularly difficult time also to be chair of Arts Council England at, at a time of austerity when arts budgets are the things that often people turn to first to cut. Have you, have you found that? It is undoubtedly a tough era. Um, arts funding between 1990 and 2005 went up a lot. The Conservatives introduced the lottery, and the lottery has provided, amongst the other good causes it supports, a lot of money for arts and culture, as it has for heritage. Uh, and really, the lottery has almost doubled the amount of money going to arts and culture. It was much less in the 1980s. Mm. I don't like to <coughs> advertise that too much, because they'll come along and tell you, well, then you'll take it away again. 
And then the other thing is that the arts had sustained funding increases under the Labour government from 2000 through to about 2006. Uh, but since 2008-9, credit crunch, arts funding has been cut, as all other sorts of funding have been cut, including the funding of higher education. So we understand why we're all in that boat. It has been tough. I think that the arts community has responded very well. In the time that their government funding has been cut, they have increased their commercial revenues. There are some people looking at new forms of other revenue, like social enterprise investment. And, um, you know, um, the, the percentage of um, the overall revenue of arts companies that is represented by the Arts Council has declined because our funding's declined, but their overall revenues have not necessarily declined because they found other ways of funding it. It's been tough, mm. but I think the sector has responded magnificently. And last question, the, have you got any advice for your fellow graduands today, the students who are in the room that are graduating alongside you? Yes, um, I've just been to the degree ceremony. I've seen people who are really proud and really happy, and it, it's great to see them on that day with their friends and family and the support of their, their colleagues and their contemporaries. And we talk, one of the things we talked about at the ceremony was the importance of the creative industries and the opportunities that it's growing very rapidly, much faster than the economy. The future economy is going to rely on the creative sector a lot. So there are lots of opportunities, but it's much more casualized mm. than other industries. Mm. It's got fewer structures for careers. And therefore, you've got to be resourceful. You've got to be damn tough. You've got to keep knocking on doors. And my advice is if you do that, you will succeed. And uh, you have a great starting point, having been at Warwick with an arts degree. Yeah. Well, thank you very much again, Sabrina, for sparing the time. And uh, once again, congratulations on your award. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here.